Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. India has started its multi-phase, weeks-long general elections that will determine the composition of the Lok Sabha, India's lower house of parliament, and also the next prime minister. Results will be announced May 23rd. To make sense of the world's largest exercise of democracy, today's episode features a discussion led by Brookings fellow Tanvi Madan, director of the India Project, and three scholars, one each from the American Enterprise Institute, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and Brookings India. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get information about and links to all of our shows. If you'd like to have your question for an expert answered on the air, or if you have any feedback from me or guests who appear on the show, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. And one more announcement. Since early in the Donald Trump presidency, our 5 on 45 podcast has offered expert commentary and analysis about policies of the administration. Starting soon, we're going to shift the focus and the name of 5 on 45. In The Current, you'll get analysis and explanation from booking scholars about breaking news and policy changes as they develop across a range of domestic and international issues. You'll learn more about what happened, why it's important, and what to expect. If you've subscribed to and have enjoyed 5 on 45, you don't need to do anything to get the current. And now, here's Tanvi Madan with a panel of experts on India's general elections. I'm Tanvi Madan, director of the India Project at the Brookings Institution, as well as a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program. Uh, we're here today to talk about the upcoming Indian election, which will take place uh, over a few weeks with results coming out on May 23rd. Today, we have a great panel to talk to us about what might happen, what we have to look forward to over the next few weeks, but also what we might expect in terms of results and scenarios. Sadanan? Sudhanand Dhume, I'm with the American Enterprise Institute, and I write a column for the Wall Street Journal. I'm Milan Vaishnav. I'm a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And I'm Dhruva Jayashankar. I'm a fellow in foreign policy studies at Brookings India in New Delhi. Uh, in 2014, we had uh, a bit of a surprise in the last Indian election. It was a surprise not that now Prime Minister Modi's BJP or Bharatiya Janata Party won the election. They were expected to come through. Uh, the surprise was that after 25 years, India had a majority government. This time around, the BJP and Prime Minister Modi are going to try to get re-elected. Milan, set the stage for us. They are trying to get re-elected. Who is opposing them? And what can we expect in terms of the major political parties that are in the fray? Yeah, so the BJP won the first single-party majority in three decades in 2014. It was something that many election analysts thought was impossible for 25 years. Uh, we had had a series of coalition governments, and, and Narendra Modi, under his leadership, led the BJP to an outright majority in 2014. And conversely, the Congress Party, which has been the dominant political formation throughout India's post-independence history, sank to a lowly 44 seats out of a parliament of 543. This was by far its lowest tally ever. In the past five years, um, the BJP has uh, risen to new heights. It controlled just five states of, of India's 29 states uh, in 2014, and it reached a peak a few months ago of, of 20. It now controls 17 states. And the Congress Party has uh, found it very hard to find their footing. Um, they struggle with two primary issues, one of leadership in that uh, they have no leader who can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Mr. Modi, who has the same kind of charisma, leadership, executive experience. And I think they struggle also with ideas. They don't quite uh, know how to put together a forward-looking aspirational vision, much like Modi did in 2014. The Congress of late has uh, experienced something of a resurgence. In December 2018, they snatched back three critical states which the BJP had controlled, which gives them some momentum. But this election season is going to be not just about these two big parties, but really about uh, a whole spate of regional political parties. I mean, we tend to forget that in an Indian general election, 
one out of every two voters votes for a party other than the Congress or the BJP. And so we have alliances being formed on both sides, some siding with the BJP, some siding with the Congress, and then a whole range of parties who prefer to stay unaligned and wait to see, you know, how the cookie crumbles. And then uh, perhaps uh, that party can be the kingmaker uh, post-election. So I would say the Congress is coming into this election uh, with the hopes of creating opportunistic state-by-state alliances to oppose the BJP. It's been a little bit slow uh, off the mark in doing so. And the one state that I'd point to is Uttar Pradesh, where there are two other big regional political parties who are opposing the BJP. The Congress doesn't find itself in that opposition alliance. And so therefore, there's a real threat that amidst this fragmentation of the opposition, the BJP could come back to power this time around. So, Dhanand, you were just in Uttar Pradesh, India's largest state, and one of the reasons that the BJP won that single-party majority the last time around was that they had almost swept that state in terms of the general election, but they also then subsequently won the state elections there. What is the general mood, not just there, about the BJP, but is there a sense that either the Congress party or this coalition of different parties, particularly two parties, the BSP and the SP. Tell us a little bit about these parties, but also kind of tell us what you think of the sense of the mood or the term that is often used in Indian politics, the hawa, this kind of intangible political wind, so to speak, which way is it blowing in Uttar Pradesh and what that might mean for kind of the broader outcome of the election? Thanks, Anvi. First, the big picture, right? Out of the 282 seats that the BJP won in 2014, uh, 71, 73 if you count an ally. Uh, So a fourth of their seats came from this one state, Uttar Pradesh. So it's hard to exaggerate the significance of Uttar Pradesh to whoever forms the next government, but particularly to the BJP. I did not travel across the state, but I did travel in the western part of, of the state, And over there, I was struck by the continued very high levels of popularity of Modi and the BJP. Uh, It's not as though you don't hear people complaining about problems, but I think that one of the things that the BJP has uh, communicated very effectively is the idea that Modi is a self-made, selfless leader who is toiling ceaselessly for the nation, is incorruptible, is a strong leader who has uh, enhanced India's status on the world stage and knows how to get tough with Pakistan when Pakistan needs to be gotten tough with. So the thing that I heard over and over again uh, in villages and, and, and in, in, that, in that part of UP, but also in you know, speaking with migrants from other parts of the Hindi heartland in Delhi, uh, was just this idea that uh, Modi is a good man. And people don't necessarily get into policy the way we do over here. I mean, you can have conversations on some of his more controversial policy moves. But the overwhelming advantage that he has, to my mind, uh, comes down to the fact that as a brand, uh, he he is still, for uh, the overwhelming number, uh, majority at least, of Hindu, Hindi-speaking voters, uh, strikes me as a brand that's overwhelmingly positive. Driva, something that Sadhanan mentioned was Modi's stance, and there's been a lot in the campaign on kind of strength, resolve, respect on the world stage that Modi has helped kind of India acquire. This time around, some have called this a national security election. And Sadhanan mentioned particularly kind of Pakistan and with the Indian Air Force strike after the recent terrorist attack in Kashmir. How do you think this is playing out? Is this a national security election? Because there's a pretty mixed record about kind of Indian voters, frankly, caring about these things beyond a certain point. So what's your sense of do foreign and security policy issues really play in any election, and particularly in this one? So I think generally national security and foreign policy has not had a major role in Indian electoral outcomes. Uh, whether it's in the 1970s and the 1990s and after the Mumbai terrorist attacks in 2008, there was a general election a year later, which it didn't seem to have much of an impact. Um, At least it's not a strong correlation. 
Um, that seems to have changed a little bit, but it's, again, uh, hard to say how much. And we already saw this a little bit in some of the state elections that took place over the last five years. Um, I recall in Maharashtra, which had a state election in 2015 or so, shortly after Modi was uh, elected, uh, they were on the campaign trail. They were they would show visuals of Modi speaking at Madison Square Garden in New York to a, a packed house of thousands of, of people overseas. Um, and this was you know, just the visuals of a prime minister going abroad and the fact that it was being used in domestic political campaigns was a little bit of a departure from what we've seen in the past. Um, I think we would have assumed that national security and foreign policy would have played a very minimal role in this election as well. Uh, and uh, you can see that to some degree in the manifestos of the two major parties, which don't pay a lot of attention, don't seem to have invested a lot in innovative ideas in, in, in the foreign policy and national security space. Um, however, uh, something happened, which was uh, a major terrorist attack uh, at Pulwama on February 14th uh, of this year. Um, and this was an attack that uh, caused the largest number of, of casualties in uh, Jammu and Kashmir for many years. Uh, it uh, happened just you know a couple of months before the election, uh, and a Pakistan-based terrorist group, Jaisha Muhammad, took responsibility for it. So suddenly, Pakistan was inserted into uh, the ele- into election rhetoric, and this was followed uh, a couple of weeks later by Indian airstrikes against uh, a, a terrorist training facility in, in Pakistan, as well as the day after that, uh, a, a, a combat between Indian and Pakistani. Um, uh, aircraft, uh, which led to the downing of an Indian uh, plane and and the capture of the pilot, who was subsequently released. Um, so suddenly, national security has been thrust into the forefront. Uh, the p- polls do seem to indicate that this has given Modi a little bit of a bump, uh, but how much of a bump and how much uh, it, I think remains to be seen. So, Anand, one of the things I mean, I've always found this idea of the fact that it's still called a manifesto is quite kind of a a throwback that they just don't call it a policy platform or a policy program. One of the things, if you look at particularly the manifestos of the BJP and the Congress party, the two largest parties, is that, as Driva mentioned, the kind of pages on foreign and security policy is quite slim on that. But the bulk of these manifestos are about a range of other issues, bread and butter issues, domestic policy. Could you give us a sense of what those key issues are as voters go to the polls beyond kind of this foreign and security, this portraying strength and respect on the international stage? What are these issues? And had this been an issue or a campaign where this kind of balakot, as they're calling it, this Indian Air Force strike, if this hadn't dominated, what would we have been talking about? And what might voters actually be voting on? So I would say broadly, if you look at the economic issues, I would say that both the major parties, both the BJP and the Congress, uh, are peddling broadly populist, welfareist messages. Now, it's harder to take away any one single thing from the BJP's platform. Uh, I'd say that, you know, it's a blend of, of, of issues, you know, broadly pointing towards national strength, national greatness of all-round economic development, and in the manner of these things are crafted, they really are, is a question of people disaggregate and look for groups, and they say, here, middle class, here, here's something for you. Women, here, you can have this. And so they're not, there isn't sort of a, to the extent that there's a coherent philosophy running through any of this, it's basically populism. The Congress parties is more interesting to the extent that there is one very clear, identifiable future, and this is the minimum income guarantee where they have essentially promised about $1,000 a year to 50 million families or 250 million people, which they say constitutes the bottom 20% of the population. Now, if you're Congress, you really want this idea. They call it NYAI, which, which is a kind of tortured acronym, but it stands fi- you know, finally for justice. And so if you're Congress, you want NYAI or justice to, or this idea to take hold. And you want these voters who are really, who may not be the most vocal voters, not the sort of people who are on Twitter, not the sort of people who are, you know, setting the tone on WhatsApp, but are nonetheless voting. And you want them to be enamored of this idea that Congress is the party that really cares for the poor and the BJP is all about this razzmatazz and they're hoping that that takes hold. Uh, it remains to be seen, uh, but the, that, that seems to be their bet. On the BJP side, it's much more a question of uh, the job has been begun well, give us five more years to do more. Milan, comment on that as well. I mean, we've seen this kind of sense of the Congress essentially saying, look, 
Modi hasn't delivered Achedin or good days, which is what he promised in the last election, and particularly on the kind of economic performance side. And the BJP saying, listen, these guys had 65 years, they didn't deliver enough. I've only had five, give me more. So don't compare, don't judge me on my five years, but essentially judge me compared to the previous governments. Are there other issues that you would highlight? What is their track record, the BJP's track record, with which they're going to the public? And do you think it's enough enough to actually get them over the finish line. I think you've said something like the national security issue gives voters almost a permission slip to overlook some of these things. But are there successes that they can point to? Or is this largely kind of a not a great track record on particularly economic performance? So I think, you know, as as Sadanan mentioned, this party came into power on the backs of pretty lofty promises about what they were going to do in terms of creating millions of jobs, Uh, reviving what had been and still is in some ways a moribund investment cycle, getting growth to potentially sort of double digits. And we really haven't seen large parts of that narrative materializes. There have been some successes in terms of shrinking the deficit, in terms of taming inflation. Uh, but the economy is still, I would say, on, on shaky ground. And so, therefore, what national security allows Modi to do is pivot to an issue uh, uh, that people identify him with because it links him to traits that he touts of leadership, of uh, decision-making, of nationalism, of muscularity. And I think the BJP, much like the Republican Party in the United States, uh, is the party which is seen as more uh, hawkish on, on national security. What's really interesting about the pivot is not just towards national security, but towards social welfare, as Adhanan mentioned. Um, the BJP came to power mocking the Congress emphasis on social welfare for the 10 years that it was in power from 04 to to 14, saying that we're going to come and take down a lot of these initiatives and focus on, you know, empowerment, not entitlement. And I think they realized, number one, there was a danger of being labeled anti-poor and too pro-business. And the second is a more of a Machiavellian sort of streak, I think, of trying to saturate the policy space on the center left such that the Congress has no way to maneuver. So if you look at the Congress counters to what the BJP is doing, it's, well, we're going to do more of it and better, right? But they really can't criticize what the BJP has done because, frankly, the BJP has just doubled down on a lot of the programs and schemes that the Congress first put into place. Savannah? I would add that, you know, a large part of this, and, you know, it's, it's, it's about political communication, and a large part of this from the BJP's perspective seems to have been to concretize the economic debate in the country. And so instead of getting into a, you know the kind of conversation we may have about GDP growth rates or fiscal deficits or investment numbers or even inflation, uh, they've turned this into, look, Modi helped poor people open this many hundreds of millions of bank accounts. Or look, we gave out this many loans to small businesses. Or look, we built this many toilets or we gave this many people home loans. It's all very concrete and tangible. And to a large extent, I think that message is getting through. Now, you can speak with people, and not everybody has necessarily benefited from every program, but the awareness that these programs exist uh, seems to have really sort of um, entered the uh, larger consciousness. And I think that they are counting on that being much more effective in terms of political messaging uh, than the kinds of conversations that we've had about the economy in the past. Dhruva, this has had this kind of debate, this emphasis on social welfare programs, populism, has had an impact on foreign policy, particularly foreign economic policy, trade and investment issues. One of the reasons, lessons that the BJP seemed to have internalized from its inability to get re-elected in 2004 was that they had focused too much on economic reform, on liberalization, on what their tagline was, India shining. And They had made a lot of people abroad happy, but that at home people were not kind of happy with the outcome. So can you tell us about like how you think this has already might have impacted some of kind of that foreign economic policy? And do you think that we will see a switch in the aftermath of the elections? There's a lot there. I think um, 
I look at three different elements of foreign economic policy, uh, and I think the record is mixed in each of these, and in one case, actually less mixed. The first, I think, is on trade policy broadly, where we've really seen, while we've seen the restart of some trade negotiations, we've seen no trade deals concluded since 2012. So this, this, uh, the Modi government basically did not conclude a single trade agreement uh, of significance. Um, and there has been concern about growing trade protectionism in a, in a number of specific fields. Some of this has actually been cited by Donald Trump himself and, and some of Trump's advisors. Um, it's playing out in uh, areas like new um, uh, technology spheres like e-commerce uh, policies and so forth. Uh, so, so I think there is has been some concern about growing trade protectionism, partly to protect uh, small businesses, which are seem to be non-competitive, uh, to in the event of, of uh, greater market liberalization, but that I think has been a feature, particularly of the of the last few years, uh, that may or may not change depending on the electoral outcome. I think a second area, which is a bit more mixed, has been in terms of sourcing foreign investment and in technology. So FDI, foreign direct investment flows, have increased, although last couple of years stabilized after that. Um, there's been a big push to improve uh, in India's uh, ease of doing business rankings, uh, making it appear to be a more attractive uh, uh, investment destination. But there too, I think the record is, is a bit more mixed than had been expected. I think the final area, which is in some ways the most nebulous, but also the most complicated, has been in terms of translating some of that openness and some of that opportunity, particularly as China's economy slows down, uh, into actual concrete changes. So. Uh, just to give uh, an example on the technology sphere, in, in theory, India has access to some of the highest levels of defense technology that not just the United States, but Russia, France, Israel have to offer. And arguably, well, few other countries in the world are as well positioned in terms of theoretical access to, to, to these technologies. How much of it is actually translated into technological transfers to India um, is, is, is it's been minimal uh, at only the lower ranges and that has to do a lot with with domestic policy in fact rather than uh, the, the the foreign policy element of it so I think the, again the record has been mixed but we are seeing these trends take place in part uh, compelled by um, by uh, pressures at, at home and you haven't seen any party really make the case or any of the major parties make the case that a more open and liberal economy has actually helped bring more people out of poverty or create more jobs than India before it liberalized. Well, and all these are kind of issues, essentially, kind of the key issues. But this election part of what we're watching is it comes down to are you going to vote on these issues or what the BJP has essentially said, you might have all these kind of issues. We have Modi. And trust Modi, put your trust in Modi. So in some ways, it's kind of a personality versus issues argument. What will you be thinking of when you go into that election booth? And just so that in case our viewers don't know, all voting in India is electronic. There are no paper votes or hanging chads. Milan, do you agree about Modi versus his performance on some of these issues? And talk us through some of the, what are the most likely scenarios? Is Modi likely to win? Is he likely to lead his coalition to power? Or can a set of opposition parties come together? And what is the likelihood that they will and that they will form the next government? So in 2014, Modi very successfully presidentialized a parliamentary election uh, to the extent that we had not seen probably since Indira Gandhi in 1971. Uh, traditionally, we have thought of Indian elections as an aggregate of state-level verdicts that sum up to some sort of you know national tally. Uh, and at least in um, the western and northern and central parts of the country, what we often term the Hindi belt, uh, there was a kind of a, a, a quasi-presidential election, less so in parts of the South and the East where the BJP and frankly the Congress for that matter are sort of bit players. So I think it's in the BJP's advantage to try and recreate that presidential system in 2019 uh, simply because the other side has no match. And we've already seen Mr. Modi on the campaign trail um, tease the opposition saying, 
we're very transparent. We're telling you who our leader is going to be. The other side won't tell you. On Monday, they'll say it's Rahul Gandhi. On Tuesday, they'll say it's Mayavati. On Wednesday, they'll say it's Mamata Banerjee. Tell us who these people so are. So Mayavati is one of the major opposition figures who is leading or co-leading the opposition alliance in Uttar Pradesh. Mamata Banerjee is a very strong chief minister in the state of West Bengal, which traditionally the BJP has not been a player in, but now they have emerged as arguably the, the most important opposition in the state. And both strong female leaders. Both strong female leaders. Um, and so the opposition would like to decentralize this and make it a state-by-state election. My guess is that we're going to land somewhere in the middle uh, because, quite frankly, the organizational and financial and charismatic advantages the BJP have are going to be hard to completely dismiss. So um, I still maintain that I think the most likely election scenario is that the BJP comes down significantly from where it was in 2014 when it had 282 seats and gets something like 210 or 220 seats. with its tell, exi- tell us how many how many uh, a party needs or a coalition needs to. So two seventy two is the magic number. That's the that's what you need to get uh, an outright majority. Um, they're unlikely to do that on their own and may not even be able to do that with their existing allies. But at 210 or 220, uh, they would comfortably form the government with the help of one or two new alliance partners. And those new alliance partners have already made clear that they'd be willing to strike some kind of deal. Um, I would say that the second scenario is the BJP almost replicates what it did last time. Maybe not quite an outright majority, but close, in which case it would easily form the government with its existing NDA or National Democratic Alliance allies. I would say the probability of that scenario, which seemed very unlikely, you know, just a few months ago, has has probably increased to, you know, I would say maybe 20 or 25 percent. The the outlier scenario is the BJP severely underperforms where it was in 2014 and gets about 180 seats. Um, that would be 100 less, fewer than it had last time. And here, I think one of two things could happen. It is conceivable the BJP could form the government, but it would require so much help from new partners that those new partners would probably demand that Modi step aside and you get a more pliable or transactional prime minister. And this is where names like Rajnath Singh, who's the home minister, and Nitin Gadkari, who's an old-time BJP hand and cabinet minister, get mentioned. I still find it very unlikely that uh, Modi and party president Amit Shah, having completely centralized all power within their hands and remade the party in their mold, are going to let somebody else come and take it away from them. Uh, More likely, I think, is that the party could sit in opposition and let the Congress and regional uh, fronts come together to form a coalition government in the hopes that it would sort of collapse under the weight of its own contradictions and then the BJP could kind of swoop in uh, as the savior. So I don't think we're likely to get to that outcome. I think the first scenario uh, where we see kind of weakened Modi and a weakened BJP come back um, is probably the most likely outcome where we are today. So, Dhanand, we've talked a lot about Modi, but we've heard some other names being mentioned. One of the great things about this great Indian festival of elections is that there are a lot of very interesting, larger-than-life personalities. Tell us a little bit about some of the people that Milan mentioned, but also kind of Rahul Gandhi, who is the sign of the dynasty that has governed India for most of its history, but also his sister, who has now entered politics in kind of a more formal way. And then, Dhruva, I'm going to ask you about some of the other kind of interesting leaders across the country, if there's anybody you're looking at, particularly any female leaders that you think we should be watching out for. So, uh, Anand? I, I would say Rahul Gandhi is India's leading smaller-than-life politician. Uh, you know, this is someone who was to the manner born. He's the son, grandson, and great-grandson of prime ministers. He has been waiting in the wings for about 15 years now. And over the last, you know, he's been, you know, he's been, uh, you know, relaunched more times than any brand of shampoo I can think of. And he somehow never manages to take off. Uh, Most recently, he's been sort of on some kind of comeback for the past year and a half. And my sense of this, and, you know, if you haven't guessed, I'm a skeptic. um, My sense of this is that he has, he suffers from a couple of really big deficiencies. 
Uh, the first is that over time, uh, we can argue about whether this, this is justifiable or not, but over time, he has been turned into a bit of a WhatsApp joke by the BJP's machine. Uh, you say his name and people start giggling, you know, and Dan Quayle syndrome, and that's never a good sign for any politician. So that's something that haunts him. I think it haunts him less among uh, English-speaking educated elites than it did a couple of years ago, but it still haunts him. Uh, the second problem he has is that he has an unerring instinct for picking the worst advisors. And this is someone who, to my mind, just does not have an instinct for for surrounding himself with people who understand the zeitgeist of the country. Coming back to a point Millen made about, you know, the lack of freshness of ideas. I mean, you would think that at a moment like this where it sort of seems pretty clear to just about anybody that India is going through a, a phase of rising nationalism. Even before this, even if you ignore the suicide car bombing in Kashmir, uh, it's pretty clear that you know many Indians, particularly young Indians, see themselves as part of this country that is a, a rising power and they sort of want to sort of feel pride in it and so on. And the inability, the complete sort of tone deafness and the inability of Congress to really tap into that, despite the fact that you know, Rahul Gandhi is 20 years younger than, Rahul, than, than Narendra Modi, uh, is quite striking to me. So that, there's, there's, there's Rahul Gandhi. The third point I'd add, since I can't stop talking about all his deficiencies, is that in many ways he sort of still projects the air of a part-time politician. So for example, just this year in December, in January, uh, he suddenly vanished for several days and nobody knew where he was. And this is just a few, I mean, there are 100 days left for a national election, and no one knows where the guy is. Turns out he'd come to the US for a few days. And it's this sort of part-timeness uh, that, that, he, that he projects that, you know, that, that makes it difficult for many people to take him seriously. His sister, who's a year younger, Priyanka Gandhi, is at least if you speak with Congress people, uh, they say that she is the natural politician in the family. Uh, I just read a very interesting magazine profile of this journalist who essentially followed her around on a boat ride uh, down the Ganges. And this reporter spent a lot of time looking at just the sort of her retail campaign skills, right? So if like someone gives her a, a glass of sherbet, she drinks it. Uh, she kind of stops and kisses the babies. So she seems to have a set of... Uh, basic political skills, uh, both in terms of communication and, and, and in terms of outreach uh, that her brother lacks. We don't yet know how this is going to translate into the, the elections. I think it's probably too little too late for this election, but it'll be very interesting to see if in the long term Priyanka Gandhi Vadra is able to translate what seems to be a, a, a much more developed sense of retail political skills than her brother into leadership. When you talk with people in the Congress privately, uh, they almost unanimously say that of the two siblings, she's the most natural politician. And of course, people point out that she has a resemblance to her grandmother, Indira Gandhi, who is also uh, Prime Minister of India. Dhruva, Sadanan mentioned rising nationalism. Is there rising nationalism in India, particularly among young voters? And going back to that question of personalities, and the reason I asked about female leaders is we have a colleague, Shamika Ravi, doing some really interesting work at the Brookings India Center on women and politics, voters as well as leaders. And we've seen there was larger turnout across the board last time. And so in 2014, there was record turnout across the board in India, 66% of voters turned out. But there was also a closing of the gap between male and female voters. And in some states, there was more turnout of female voters than men turning out. So tell us a little bit about kind of this aspect of is there rising nationalism, particularly among young voters? There will be 130 million, Milan, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, 130 million young voters in this election, that is between 18 and 23, who've never voted before. And also this aspect of are there kind of these major female leaders that you're looking out for that might be interesting? You know, there does appear to be a rising nationalism, depending on how you define it. Uh, and you can see this in a few ways. One is simply uh, the media and the popularity of media, both traditional and um, uh, social media. So, for example, when a uh, particular nationalist uh, TV news anchor launched a, his own party, 
uh, I'm sorry, his own news channel a few a couple of years ago. It's almost uh, a party. It's almost a party. Yeah. No, it, it, it to I think to the surprise of many people, it became. Um, uh, it, it, it's now far. It, its viewership has has significantly surpassed those of many of the traditional English language uh, television news channels, um, and and you know this caters to a, uh, at least what he produces seems to cater to a, a very nationalist uh, uh, audience and nationalist base. You see this in social media. Uh, public opinion surveys also seem to indicate a little bit of that. So a lot of surveys indicate that Indian uh, Indians, particularly young Indians, see. Um, want to see India as a major power, or believe that India is a major power and is seeking a rightful its rightful place in the world. Uh, rather paradoxically, and this actually is mirrored in, in U.S. public opinion surveys, is that when when they're asked what should India do about it, you know, would you like to see more Indian military intervention? They're a bit more tepid about about, about what that uh, you know. What We're glad the, about the burdens, them not uh, being tepid about military intervention. Yeah, don't you think uh, the, so, so, so the, 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 or at least uh, India's it, neighbors are glad. Right. So, so the costs associated with with leadership, they, they're a bit more hesitant about, but they they do want the respect and, and and I think that that's indicated. In terms of the elections, you know, I think there are a number of colorful personalities who've spoken about a few. Uh, I would actually highlight four quickly four groups. You know, one is prominent female politicians, not just with the two major parties, and both will be fielding a large number of female candidates. But you know, Mamta Banerjee, who um, Milan already mentioned, who uh, is the chief minister of West Bengal, kind of single-handedly f- campaigned against the Communist Party in West Bengal, which had ruled for many years, and very successfully campaigned against them and, and rose to power. And has no family links that she on on right, the back. Yeah. Of which and, she and, came and another politician like that, Ma- Mayawati, who you know is a, a Dalit leader belonging to the lowest uh, social strata uh, in India, but who's uh, carved out a, a powerful position for herself in, in Uttar Pradesh. Uh, Mehbooba Mufti, I would mention, is another one. I mean, she does come from a political family, but she's uh, until recently was the chief minister, uh, governor of Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, while it doesn't have a lot of electoral votes or electoral seats, uh, obviously uh, Jammu and Kashmir uh, carries a, a great deal of importance, uh, particularly given uh, the terrorist attack there recently. Um, a second category of interesting personalities are a bunch of regional uh, leaders, and particularly in the South, uh, we'll see some rather powerful uh, regional parties uh, coming up, whether it's in Telangana uh, where, uh, or in uh, Andhra Pradesh. Um, uh, the future of some of these parties will be in question. Uh, the, the BJD, which is a party in Orissa, is facing, again, another onslaught of the BJP. Uh, which is all, uh, reshaping in some ways uh, the political map there. Um, a third category of interesting people to observe is these new millennials, uh, in some ways a post-liberalization. These are 20-something uh, Indians, Hardik Patel, uh, Kanaya Kumar, people like that. These are people who often rose on the back of uh, popular charismatic either student protests or, or, or public protests, um, and how they manage this transition into mainstream politics will be interesting to see. Some of them are actually standing for election for the first time. And finally, I would, I would also mention some of the uh, regional leaders in the Congress, particularly, who have seen a bit of a resurgence with, with uh, Congress doing well in the last uh, local election. So Ashok Gelot, Kamal Nath, these are chief ministers of large states uh, who are close to, to, to Rahul Gandhi, uh, and how they fare and how they're portrayed in, in, in the coming weeks will be interesting to see. Milan, Shriver mentioned or alluded to some key voting groups. He talked about the Dalits, but also we've talked about women. Talk to us about which of the voting groups you'll be watching. We've seen parties, and Sadaran had mentioned, you know, kind of there's almost something for everybody thrown out there, but that we hear we'd call it micro-targeting, right? Talk to us about which of the voting groups as such that you're watching, and do they really vote as groups? Yeah, I would I would say there's three groups, uh, and we've kind of danced around this. I think the first is these young voters, the 130 million first-time voters, people between the ages of 18 and 23 have never voted in a general election. What's interesting about this group is that prior to 2014, they have turned out to vote at much lower rates than the general population. Uh, in 2014, they voted at higher rates than the average, and they broke decisively for the BJP. And it's one of the great ironies that Dan mentioned that here is Narendra Modi, who's much older than Rahul Gandhi, who's able to connect with younger voters much better than Rahul is, in part because of the sorts of themes that he talked about in 2014. Now, where are these youngsters today, right? On the one hand, you could argue they look out and see a continuing lack of jobs, economic distress, uh, rural disquiet, and maybe turned off. On the other hand, uh, there is the Tina factor of the there is no alternative and thinking that, you know, Modi's perhaps the best guy for the job and we should give him five more years. The second group are women. Um, we have seen a really remarkable 
remarkable development in India over the past 10 years where we're almost reaching gender parity when it comes to voter turnout between men and women. This is something that has never happened before. Women have traditionally lagged behind men when it comes to coming out to vote on election day by six to eight percentage points. And so we're seeing now in state elections, and as you mentioned, in half of the states in last time's national election, women coming out to vote in greater numbers. The reason this gets a lot of attention is because these are newly mobilized actors. Political parties believe that they're up for grabs, that they're sort of swing voters who don't have deep political or ideological or partisan attachments. And so when you look at the major campaigns of the BJP and the Congress, a lot of the schemes and campaign promises they're talking about are packaged up in a very pro-women rhetoric. So whether it's the cleaning up of cooking gas subsidies, which is something the BJP has done, uh, opening bank accounts, you know, the Congress party is saying, if we come to power and implement this new minimum in- income support scheme, that will go to the uh, woman of the house to her bank account. Um, what we don't know really is, do women want any of these things? So we even still talk about women in a very patriarchal way, saying, you know, oh, here are things that are, that will make her more efficient in the kitchen when she cooks. And so, uh, but the point is um, that parties are reaching out to them, and I think that's an that's an interesting sign. The third group are Dalits. Um, you know, the, the the former untouchables, India's uh, the, the sort of lowest rung on the caste hierarchy. Over a period of ten or fifteen years, Dalits have become a strong votaries of the BJP, uh, and Narendra Modi was really able to capitalize that uh, on that in two thousand fourteen. During the past five years, there have been a number of incidents, anti-Dalit violence, a gap between promises of representing Dalits and a lack of adequate political representation and bureaucratic representation that has fed a sense among some Dalit quarters of resentment or disaffection with the BJP. Now, this would be a really big deal if they were to vote for the opposition, and that would be a considerable vote bank, as we call them, that would the BJP would be deprived of. What we don't know is whether national security and the issues that Dhruva was talking about somewhat neutralize this because the BJP has been exploiting this issue to the hilt, saying, you know, it's too dangerous right now to change horses in midstream. Um, India's poorest are going to be worse off if you have a messy, fragmented, kind of rudderless uh, government that comes in after us. So then I think you want to respond to that. But also, I mean, one of the things you've written about in terms of how you describe these elections, we've heard many descriptions, right, that this is going to be the Modi versus everybody else or personality versus issues. One of the things you wrote was in the summer last year, and a number of people have picked up on that, which is this is a kind of, if 2014 was the hope election, this is the fear election. And I think that's to that point of kind of après moi le déluge that, you know, if you don't vote for Modi, India will not be secure or guarded. There's also another aspect. It's not just been Dalit. We have seen other identity kinds of identity politics, religious kind of identity politics. So respond to Milan, but also talk to us about whether this aspect of Hindu nationalism in particular has been something that has come up in this election. Yeah, and I think actually both those points are related. Um, You know, one way of looking at this is that uh, you have this broad theme that's been running through Indian politics, at least since the late 1980s when (coughs) Elke Advani relaunched the BJP. And on the BJP's part, there is an attempt to consolidate the 80% of Indian voters who identify at some level as Hindus. And if you saw how they did in 2014, you would see that across the board, regardless of demographic, regardless of the of, of wealth, all groups that were identified as Hindus, whether they were upper caste or the so-called other backward classes or the Dalits, a plurality of voters went for the BJP. So they beat the, the Congress amongst all of those sections. The opposition would like caste to play a larger role role, and they want to splinter that 80%. So that's one dynamic that's sort of um, running through this. And then the other, of course, is that there's another 20% of Indians who are not uh, Hindu, uh, primarily Muslims, but also Christians. And my sense here is that the BJP hopes to get some of these votes simply, you know, merely by pointing out that 
some of the welfare programs, whether it's the bank accounts or it's the gas connections or the toilets or the home loans, uh, have gone to people of all communities and that these people should, you know, that Christians and Muslims should also uh, therefore turn around and vote for the BJP. Uh, my own sense of this is that this is, uh, it's not very likely because what you have seen uh, is a sharpening of some of the uh, exclusivist, internationalist uh, rhetoric, if not from the prime minister, certainly from other senior figures within his party. And so to that extent, I think that identity politics is more heightened this time around compared to last time round. And one of the things that we you know, don't really talk about so much, and partly because you know, some of us, because we're so firmly rooted in the secular world, we may not have the vocabulary to speak about it, is this almost, you know, quasi-mystical appeal that Modi has among a certain section of voters, right? Uh, I was just watching a, a YouTube video the other day of a group of people singing this, you know, you could call it, I don't know, you'd call it a bhajan or some other kind of Which devotional, is a devotional, a devotional song. song uh, all about how, you know, Modi was coming back and this was this sort of great moment. And they were like, you know, pl playing the drums and they were in this sort of almost like so sort of this trance-like state. And I think that that's stuff that, you know, we don't talk about so much because it's out of our world. But that's something real. Uh, in terms of the question of fear, I think it does come down to uh, who do you, how do you view some of these questions of identity politics? If you believe that the Hindu nationalist movement is fundamentally at odds with Indian pluralism, um, and uh, certainly uh, among the commentariat, that is a fairly uh, widespread fear, uh, then you really have reason to worry about five more years for Modi because this is somebody who is seen as effectively shredding the social compact between the majority Hindu community and minorities, particularly Muslims and Christians, but especially Muslims. Uh, my last piece for the Times of India, I pointed out how over the past five years, you know, if the if we had if if, if we had an ease of doing bigotry index, you know, India has climbed remarkably up the rankings. I don't mean that's a good thing, and uh, this is really something that uh, many people in the majority community are sort of blind to because it just doesn't affect them. But it's very hard to come to you know meet with. Uh, Muslims or Christians who are not concerned. So that's that's one set of fears, right? What does five more years of this figure who clearly uh, doesn't care about these issues or doesn't care about them enough, what does that mean for the social compact in India? The fears on the other side, on the, from, from a BJP uh, voter's perspective, is that if you let the Congress back in, you're basically opening the door to corruption, lassitude, lack of merit, the idea that this country of 1.3 billion uh, people is not really being democratic, it's just in hawk to a single family, and it doesn't matter how mediocre the leadership of that family is, you're just supposed to sort of continually uh, elect them and treat them as effectively a royal family. And on both sides, uh, you see a shrinking of space, partly due to social media, as you, do it, as you see in other countries, and uh, there is a very black and white view, I think, of uh, what this means. And uh, both sides are extremely fearful of what a victory by the other would mean. Milan? Uh, you know, I would just say, uh, I think Sadhanand is right, that, you know, there is this, in some sense, you know, many people have said one of the things that's at stake is, you know, what kind of India India will be in the future. Will it be a country for the majority Hindu population? Will it be a secular republic? Two things. One is that secularism really isn't on the menu this time. No one is talking about that because it has been successfully branded as minority appeasement. And so even the Congress, which used to champion the cause of democratic secularism, is talking about how you reclaim Hinduism from Hindutva. In other words, how you create separation between Hinduism, which is an inclusive, plural, uh, open religion, from kind of the fringes, uh, Hindu nationalism. Um, and so we don't know if that's a short-term tactical move or this is actually has long-term ramifications for where the country might go. But I would submit that the BJP is also not 
talking so much about Hindu nationalism during this election. Of course, there's undercurrents, there's dog whistling. I mean, dog whistling actually isn't even an apt term. There's just outright, you know, whistling, whistling. (laughs) Um, But they have pivoted to talking about nationalism more generally. The commitment to India's sovereignty and what they call its sacred geography, Uh, a a call to patriotic loyalty and commitment to the nation, um, quashing certain forms or curbing certain forms of dissent that call into question government or government leaders. And I think the worry over here is once you get in the business of issuing certificates on who's a good national and who's an anti-national, it's just a short pivot from there to say, well, what makes a good national is a good Hindu. Um, but it, it's less abrasive and, 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 and less of a turnoff when you're talking about nationalism in these general terms because it, it's somewhat devoid on the surface of this religious content. Dhruva Sadanand mentioned social media has made things more polarized, more divisive. Others would argue it's actually made the situation more democratic, that now even the Congress party, which Rahul Gandhi didn't even have a Twitter account till recently, that they've actually had to kind of up their game, that whether it's YouTube or kind of WhatsApp, which is very big in India and owned by Facebook or even Twitter. That TikTok. The, TikTok, which is this, uh, which most people don't know about here, but this is Chinese kind of uh, video app. Um, that these things Are you on TikTok, Tanvi? No, I am not on TikTok. I'm not even on Insta, as my uh, nieces tell me it should be called, not even Instagram. But that these things have actually made this more democratic and more responsive to particularly younger voters. You've actually looked at kind of social media, information distribution and technology as well in the past across a variety of democracies. But how do you see this playing out? How are these tools being used? We've talked a lot about fake news in the U.S. context, but is this a problem there? And the reason I think a lot of companies here care about this is that for a number of these American companies that are these platforms, this has become either, if it's not already their biggest market, it will be very soon. Right. You know, I mean, I think those two things are not necessarily contradictory. That is, social media has made politics more democratic. And it's not just in India. We see this in the United States. We see this in Western Europe. We see it in other emerging countries like Indonesia as, as well, which is having, having an election of its own. Um, at the same time, it's also it's actually created a form of direct democracy and has actually, in a weird way, started to undermine um, the other mechanisms of of democratic governance and democratic politics, some of which we had started to take for granted. And this is playing out in a few ways. One is through misinformation, and we're seeing lots of it. Um, uh, In some ways, things like Twitter and Facebook are still, in India, elite platforms, but uh, Facebook a little less so, but WhatsApp and, and, and other things are now major ways of disseminating information, including by political parties. Um, it's imp- increased the theatricality of politics. So we saw this after the Balakot strikes, where even though you had Indian officials and military officers giving very carefully crafted statements about what India did and what the legal basis for its actions were, you had Indian political leaders, including from the ruling government, uh, ruling party, uh, saying things that were not as um, uh, diplomatic or as as, as careful. Um, and clearly catering to a domestic audience. You're seeing greater uh, gridlock. The idea that compromise is now a bad thing, uh, and you see, you know, everywhere. Uh, again, you're seeing this across the across party lines, and you're seeing greater polarization. And so, this combination, I think, of, of misinformation, theatricality, gridlock, polarization, is is, some, are, are, is are leading to a set of trends that we're seeing in, in many different places, India included. Um, and I'm not sure there's anything really that's been done, whether it's by social media company, uh, uh, social media companies whether it's by governments, whether it's by civil society groups, to really try and address how do you not turn the clock back uh, because you've, you've effectively, to mix metaphors, you've actually let the genie out of the bottle already. Uh, but uh, how do you now try and recreate um, the, the elements of, of uh, representative democracy in this new digital environment? So I'm going to ask you all one last question each. Milan, is there something in particular that you're watching over these next few weeks of the election campaign? Is there one thing that you will watch in particular? And second, what on May 23rd, when the results come out, it'll be morning our time. We hope that we'll know the results by then, because otherwise it'll mean there's a hung parliament or something. But what would surprise you uh, on May 23rd? So I think the one thing that uh, many of us are looking out for is whether the Congress is going to be able to come to some kind of modus vivendi with potential alliance partners. Um, Will it 
come to a tacit agreement, if not an explicit agreement, with the BSP and the SP in Uttar Pradesh in terms of how they will campaign such that the Congress will not split opposition votes. That's a real danger. The latest CSDS poll, which is the only social science poll that's done in India, shows the Congress could get 10% of the vote in UP. If the Congress gets 10% of the vote, you can bet a sizable chunk of that is coming from the opposition uh, alliance-owned uh, demographic uh, constituencies. Similarly, in Delhi, there has have been rumors for months now about a potential alliance between the ruling Ahmadmi Party, which controls the state of Delhi, and the Congress. Uh, my view is the Congress has little hope of even getting one Lok Sabha seat if it contests on its own, uh, where they could potentially do quite well with the op, but they have not uh, consummated that alliance. Um, so there's still time, but the hour is pretty late now with, with voting starting on April 11th. Uh, you could start to, to, to tinker around with the later phases of elections. But um, I think what would surprise me um, in, on, on May 23rd is, uh, is this question of, of turnout, right? Because we have seen a very energized electorate in India. But when you talk to people on the campaign trail, I've heard this from a number of people. I don't know if you felt this, Sudan. And some people thought that the kind of buzz and energy of elections of past yesteryear wasn't quite there. Uh, and what is that going to mean? Because part of the mobilization surge that took place in 2014 directly benefited the BJP. It is precisely in those constituencies where turnout increased the most that the BJP vote share increased the most. And if you don't have that kind of enthusiasm, um, that could be somewhat problematic, I think, for the, for the ruling party. So then what would surprise you? What would surprise me enormously is if we wake up on, on <clears throat> well, I'll already be in India, so I'll be awake. But if, as the results come in, we find that the Congress has pulled off the kind of upset that it pulled off in 2004, where, again, the situation seemed very similar, where most people were predicting a BJP government being elected again. You had a series of people defecting to the ruling party, expecting it to win. You had the stock markets pricing in a return. You had all these sort of different elements. And if, if for some reason, the Congress, the Congress were able to, you know, pull off this come-from-behind upset, uh, that is really something that would surprise me. And I'd have to spend a lot of time on Twitter explaining why I thought that wasn't going to happen. In 2014, uh, Brookings did an election panel, which you could probably find online, where I think we started the results day by saying, what did all of us get wrong? And we will do that again on May 24th when we do a, a results uh, panel discussion, which will be available online. One of the things that I think the results will depend on turnout, and the reason I'm watching turnout is because I want to see how many young people turn out. Uh, but also globally, we've talked about this decline of democracy. And though, you know, elections aren't the only signal of the health of a democracy, I do think they suggest something about what voters are thinking about their political systems and their incumbent. Shriva, I'm going to ask you the last question. Why should people in the U.S. care about this election? Yes, it's big. There are 890 million people potentially who go to vote. Yes, it's interesting and it's full of color. But why should Americans care? And will it make a difference what that government at the end of May in the beginning of June will look like for U.S.-India relations? Yeah, that's a, a good question. I mean, I think you have here a 1.3 billion person country that's a democracy, flawed in many ways, but still nonetheless a thriving democracy and an open society, uh, where public opinion of the United States is extremely positive and has remained positive uh, unlike many other parts of the world, including many U.S. allies, has remained positive even after the election of Donald Trump. Uh, that is a $3 trillion economy uh, that is growing, even if by its uh, uh, lower than expected standards, still growing at you know 7%, give or take, uh, a year. Uh, that has become an increasingly large trade and economic partner that is home to a sizable, um, or is, a, is a, the home country for a sizable diaspora now in the, in the United States. Um, I think for all of these reasons, uh, this is an election that Americans should be paying attention to, uh, for better or for worse. Um, so I, I do think it'll be something that, that, that will be important. And, and you know, again, as, as the United States and India become 
closest strategic partners, and that's happening in a sort of slow, steady way uh, with, with bumps, bumps along the road. It's all the more important that uh, the United States uh, pays attention to India's future. Thank you to all of you, to Sadanand Dhume from the American uh, Enterprise Institute, uh, Milan Vashnav from the Carnegie Endowment, and Dhruvat Jashankar, uh, one of our own at Brookings, for talking us through this kind of exercise, this Grand Indian Festival. Do follow their work on their websites, their organizations, but also on Twitter where they will be tweeting their own work as well as those of others who it'd be interesting to follow. So thank you all and please do tune in for our election results panel on May 24th, which will be available online. You can get more Brookings research about India on our website, brookings.edu, and also check out the podcast on India's elections hosted by Milan Vaishnav at the Carnegie Endowment. The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. The producers are Chris McKenna and Brennan Hoban. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Eric Abalahin provides design and web support. Our intern this semester is Quinn Lucas. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, Intersections, 5 on 45 and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.